This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. With over 500,000 products to choose from, christianbook.com brings everything Christian right to your fingertips, always at great values. Find it now at christianbook.com. Hi, I'm Richard Clark. I'm a producer for CT Podcasts. For the last few months, we've been working on a brand new podcast in partnership with the Christian Standard Bible. And we'd like to tell you about it now. Here's a little sneak peek. There's this one phrase of the Bible from Hebrews 4.12 that I think we've taken for granted. In the Christian Standard Bible, it reads, For the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. I think we hear that phrase and we imagine a simple process. People read the Bible, they understand the Bible, and then it makes a difference for the better. But what if it's not that simple? Of course, we know what the Bible does for us. It corrects us. It inspires us. It leads us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to society at large, verses hit people in all sorts of different ways, depending on who you are, where you live, and when you live. And the Bible's played a pivotal role in the world. It's been effective. But that role isn't always as straightforward as we'd like to think it is. That verse, Hebrews 4.12, describes the Bible as a sharp double-edged sword. That means it's not going to flow smoothly along the contours of history. Sometimes it cuts against the grain, even when the church doesn't. Hi, I'm Richard Clark. I'm a producer for CT Podcasts. Christianity Today and the Christian Standard Bible set out to make a podcast that explored the living and effective nature of God's Word. The idea behind this podcast was to try to get to the bottom of exactly what the role of Scripture was in some of the most pivotal moments in history. And I'm going to level with you. This has not gone the way we planned. Civil rights activists, especially Christians, are looking around at other believers and they're asking, are we reading the same Bible? These are not a series of feel-good stories. The Bible is used in all sorts of ways, and sometimes for not-so-righteous purposes. If the South had won the Civil War, slavery would have kept going, and the South was as Bible-devoted as the North. But we decided to focus on that tension and figure out exactly what it means that God's Word is effective. The printing press is, in fact, the entire story, and Luther is sort of the afterthought. In a world that contains atrocities like American slavery, when the church is divided among racial lines, When the world sees Christianity as uncool or a passing fad. When it happened, it was just like, this is just absolutely devastating. Because he wasn't Bob Dylan anymore. When the Bible is constantly misused. And when obeying the Bible seems nearly impossible in the moment. King received up to 40 death threats every day. And the answers to the problem of evil that he got from Protestant liberalism He said the answers didn't come there. And then he said, I remember the God my father taught me about. We believe that the Bible is living and effective. But the question really is, effective at doing what? Coming this fall, 
the Christian Standard Bible and Christianity Today present Living and Effective, a podcast about the moments when humanity and the Bible collide. You can subscribe to Living and Effective on iTunes now. It's Wednesday, October 24th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. Today's Mindy Bells joins us to discuss the latest with the U.S. government's hundreds of millions of dollars pledged to help Christians and other religious minorities in Iraq. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Galley. Hello. Hey, Mark. Hey. It's good to be here with you. It's good to be here with you. So much sincerity. <laughs> it's been a day of meetings, and this is my last one. No, it isn't. I have one more after this. There you go. What a trooper. Yeah. Thanks for... Part of the job, but this is actually the thing I've been looking forward to all day, so I'm glad we're here. The highlight of your day. All right, tell us more about Mindy, who is joining us. Uh, Mindy Bell is a senior editor of World Magazine and the author of They Say We Are Infidels. She has covered war in the Balkans, Sudan, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and has reported also from Nigeria, Syria, Turkey, Haiti, and elsewhere. Her reporting, which I've always found uh, thoughtful and vigorous writing, uh, has been published overseas and in the United States in such publications as the Weekly Standard and the Wall Street Journal. She has appeared on Fox News, ABC News, and... The pinnacle of her professional life, she's now on Quick to Listen. Hey, Mindy. Hi, thank you for having me. Mindy, are we talking to you from the States or are you overseas right now? You are talking to me from the States, from my home base in North Carolina. Where's the most recent place that you traveled to? Well, besides, I've been speaking some recently. So I was in Memphis this past week, a uh, wonderful time getting to talk about some of this same material and probably overseas most recently was in Jordan a little bit ago and hoping to get back again later before the end of the year. I trust your uh, trip to Jordan and other places is better than mine. I remember I went to a conference in Jordan and I'll tell you what Jordan looks like. It looks like the inside of a hotel and the inside of a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you need to get out to the desert, there's nothing like the desert for quiet. All right. That's great. It's a real beauty. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would second that. Wadi Rum is awesome, Mark. Highly recommend. All right. Yes, I agree. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion today. Last year, Vice President Mike Pence pledged direct support to Christians, Yazidis, and other minorities forced out of their homelands in Iraq by ISIS. Religious freedom advocates and groups in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq cheered the news. Then the money didn't come. Last week, the Trump administration announced a multi-million dollar assistance plan to bring the total fundings over the past year for religious minorities in Iraq to nearly $300 million. The money will be used to rebuild communities, preserve heritage sites, secure left-behind explosives, and empower survivors to seek justice. This week on Quick to Listen, we will discuss what happened to last year's plan to send money to Iraq, how the U.S. government will change things this go-around, and what life is like on the ground in Iraq right now for Christians. So, Mark, I would just love to do a little, a little gut check before we start speaking with Mindy and hear what type of reaction you had when you read this story that came out last week, and we actually covered it in our news section on the site. 
probably mostly mystified. I mean, I hear I, it sounds like a, a great thing, and it seems like it's something I would support, but I have no idea what's going on behind the scenes, What if there are ulterior motives, if the money will actually get there, who it will go to. So I'm usually left on a story like that with uh, some sense of mystery of, of what it really happens on the ground with that. I also just don't necessarily know that I know how much $300 million is. That's true. It seems like a lot, but then when you compare it to other things, it's hardly anything at all. So a couple weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking about natural disasters, and I remember someone was talking, I believe, about Hurricane Florence, and they said the damage was $20 billion worth. Yeah, right. This is not even $1 billion that they gave to the situation, which to me would probably also constitute, you know, some sort of humanitarian disaster. So I don't, I don't necessarily know. So that would be part of the reason I probably thought, I don't know what this is really about, $300 billion. It's better than nothing. That's great. And I can uh, praise the administration for doing that much. But on the other hand, like you're saying, nowadays, $300 million is goes away in a heartbeat. Yeah. Well, Mindy, we're glad that you're here today. Maybe you can give us a sense over the next couple of minutes just how much of a dent you think this plan will make. But before we get into all of that, I would love if you can just kind of recap our audience with what has been going on with the Iraqi Christians. And maybe we can start all the way back with 9-11, if you don't mind. Or if you want to start back even further with the Persian Gulf War. I don't know exactly where the best place or, is to start. Or the early church. Okay, that too. But maybe... <laughs> how, how long we have here. Because, you know, a, a deacon in a church in Baghdad, when I asked him about his family, he said, well, I have 32 archbishops in my family tree. Oh I mean, we're t- we can go wow. way back with the with this topic if we want to, but you know, I mean, let's go back to nine eleven and where Iraq was before the U.S. invasion in two thousand three. Iraq was under the Saddam Hussein regime. It was not pretty, as we all remember, and there was a large run up to this war where the Bush administration was accusing Saddam Hussein of aiding terrorists and producing weapons of mass destruction and that sort of thing. And I think. A lot more of that was true than is widely believed at this point in history, but let's don't get into that today. At any rate, you know, what I was hearing, I made my first trip to Iraq in 2002, a year before the U.S. war began. And everywhere I went, I was meeting people who had been jailed for one reason or another, political or religious dissent. And well, you know, we've come to a place where we often say, well, Iraq actually was more stable under Saddam Hussein. People in Iraq would say, well, Saddam Hussein was an equal opportunity persecutor. <laughs> he, you know, he, he hurt everybody who didn't, wasn't totally on board with his program. So it was not a happy place in 2003 for the Christians. Like everyone else, there was a great deal of fear. They could worship. Churches were open. But Saddam Hussein, for instance, he closed a number of churches in Baghdad after the Gulf War, the Anglican Church, because of its ties to the Brits. You know, just for arbitrary reasons after the Gulf War, he used the Gulf War as an excuse to close churches. So a number of churches have been shuttered. Many were very small because people just didn't want to get on the wrong side of the regime. And the U.S. invasion, let's call it, and liberation was seen as as a great opportunity for them. The army came in. Remember how swift it was that we took over territory and essentially gained control of the country. Saddam Hussein was sent into hiding, not found for three months. And 
there was a great sense of hope and expectation. And I was visiting churches in December of that year, 2003, and it was remarkable. Churches were opening. Anglican Church had opened with a a U.S. Army chaplain and an Iraqi, very charismatic pastor running this Anglican church in the heart of Baghdad. And it was very exciting. They were putting plastic chairs on the lawn outside because they had such an overflow crowd. And so that church was growing from 200 to 400 to 600 people. Another church I attended in Baghdad, 800 people within the year after uh, the U.S. liberation. So a great sense of hope. And, you know, the Christian population we've estimated before the war was about a million, maybe 1.2. Sometimes you'll see 1.3 million. And if we if we want to come all the way forward, we all kind of remember what the Iraq war was like and that the terrorist groups that flocked the rise of, first of all, Islamic State of Iraq and then Islamic State of Iraq and Syria and coming forward to 2014 when ISIS actually invaded Iraq in the middle of a, a civil war in Syria. And in 2014, just before that invasion, I went back to some of those same churches in Baghdad. And I actually, I thought this was kind of maybe the bookend of my reporting in Iraq. And I wanted to see exactly what the situation was. And the churches that were 400, 600, 800 were down to 100, 200 people. There was a lot of fear. They, they had high concrete barrier walls all the way around their church compounds. Um, you had to go through checkpoints and sometimes had to be scanned to and get into This was before the, ISIS even came in, you're saying? Yeah, this was in 20, early 2014, the spring of 2014. So a dramatic difference that I think I'm, I'm condensing a lot, but gives you a picture of what happened to this church broadly speaking, and I'm, you know, great diversity of Christian believers in Iraq that we can talk about, is that it was repeatedly targeted and that no one was paying attention to that. The United States, when we had troops on the ground and were essentially running the government in Iraq, we were not paying attention to the minorities, the Christians, the Yazidis, the Shabaks, the Turkmans. We were not in some way looking out for them. They did not have sufficient political representation that would look out for them. And they were getting no favors from the Iraqi government. And so the jihadists were targeting them with impunity. And this is why this church was dwindling. And um, it was down to about 250,000 by the time that ISIS came in. And it's down further at this point to somewhere probably around 100,000. So if we if we want to look at the great scope of, you know, at the big picture, I'll say, if we want to look at the macro view of what happened, what happened is from the time of the U.S. invasion to now, you have seen a dramatic, you know, a Christian church of over a million people that has been reduced to about 100,000 people. And besides just the enormity of that decimation, is the fact that this is a church that had survived everything the world could throw at the church. It's a church that survived the Mongol invasion, the Persian conquest, the invasion of, you know, the coming of Muhammad's armies and the coming of Islam. It's a church that had survived all of that. And somehow, you know, I think we just can't escape the fact that that history will look back and see a turning point as a U.S.-led invasion, which is greatly ironic 
if you think about it. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you use the word decimate. We often use that to mean uh, just something terrible and catastrophic that's happened, but actually it means to reduce to one-tenth, and that's exactly what's happened in Iraq. Yeah, I would agree with your point about it being ironic that a country that does see itself as being a Christian nation potentially catalyzed what led to the disappearance of the Christian church in Iraq. Mindy, I'm I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what the state of Iraqi Christians was when Trump and Pence took office last year. I think we have to talk a little bit about what happened in 2014 when ISIS invaded Iraq. The, the ISIS militants took over the city of Mosul, which was a city was a city of 2 million people, was a very diverse city divided among Arabs, predominantly Sunni but a number of Shia Arabs and Kurds, large Turkmen population, and probably about 30,000 Christians living there. And then and those many of those people, particularly those Christians, fled out into Nineveh Plain. And then within about a month and a half, ISIS moved out into Nineveh Plain, which is the historic heartland of Christianity in this part of the world. And they completely emptied those villages as they came through. So the largest town being Karakosh, a town of 60,000 people, became a town of no one, (laughs) a town of zero people. And so this area has been completely emptied. And it is really one of the most striking things in all of my travels and all of my reporting that I've ever seen is to go back to cities that I knew when they were populated and to see them absolutely completely empty. That was the scene up until about 18 months ago. In late 2016, Karakosh, a number of these other villages were liberated by the the Iraqi army with the support of the U.S. and other coalition partners. And there were trickles of people returning. But the security situation wasn't there. And particularly for the Christians, that's just a huge problem because, as we've said, they've endured more than a decade of not having security. And so now that they've lost everything and their homes have been destroyed, the idea of going back without security is just unthinkable. So you would see just slow migrations back, people trying to begin to rebuild homes or property or businesses that were destroyed. Um, Very, very, very hard and piecemeal work. This was the state of things when President Trump took office. And the funding situation has been, I wish I could say that I can explain it, but I really can't explain it. Under the Obama administration and appropriations by Congress up through last year, about $130 million was being appropriated for specifically for rebuilding these areas. But under the Obama administration, all of it was going through the UN. And at one point when the UN began to put together their plan for assisting with rebuilding and stabilization in Iraq, we were seeing reports with maps and they had dots for where the UN planned to open offices. The offices all went around Nineveh Plain. There was nothing planned by the UN to stabilize this area. And it was the area that had been the most devastated. And it's hard to see that as anything but a sort of bias against this Christian community. I just don't know any way to, to see it. The UN denied that it was that, but it's just hard to see how it was anything but that. At the same time, the Iraqi government, many other sources also, money was flowing toward rebuilding 
Muslim communities and not toward rebuilding Christian communities. So what the Trump administration faced was a way of trying to sort of wrest U.S. funding back from the U.N. to where the U.S. had discretion and where this money went. (laughs) You would think that that would be something this administration could do, particularly someone who's a forceful president like Donald Trump. And it has taken a long time to get this sorted out. Yeah. So from what I understand, they announced money again last year, or at least Vice President Pence did, which we noted earlier in the show. And yet that money, absent the UN infrastructure, you're saying, didn't necessarily have this other infrastructure that it could just be funneled through. That's right. What was supposed to happen last year, Vice President Pence, and this is by all accounts, I've not spoken to him, but I've talked to a lot of people around him and people who've been in meetings with him on this subject. It's an issue that he cares very deeply about and one that he thinks should be a priority for the United States. He gave a speech and announced that the United States would be taking an active role in rebuilding these communities. Then he discovered months in that it wasn't happening. And we were hearing a lot of different reasons for why it wasn't happening. Congress wasn't unified in what should happen. USAID, the agency within the State Department that is in charge of these kinds of projects, USAID wasn't on the same page. And so um, someone in Washington would think that things were happening one way, but we were told at one point that the personnel, the USAID personnel at the embassy in Baghdad was not on board and they were just sitting on it. It wasn't happening. Here's what's, you know, really kind of tragic about this. You have people living in displaced camps, refugee camps. Um, We've seen what a huge issue worldwide the refugee and migrant crisis is. These are the people that we're talking about. These are people who are daily or weekly having to have conversations with their families and decide, are we going to continue living in this trailer that someone has provided for us? Are we going to continue living in this overcrowded apartment building where they put us? Are we going to try to find our way to Turkey or to Canada? There's a clock on this situation. People cannot just stay in limbo forever. It's been really tragic to watch how even when an administration came in that actually seemed committed to this issue, it's taken a year and a half to um, get something done. And in that time period, I mean, we know that 25,000 Christians have left the region. And those are 25,000 Christians who may or may not be back, most likely I would say will not be back, because they waited long enough for someone to step in. And what we're talking about is, I mean, we could go back and talk about the, the level of destruction there. It's just, it's really phenomenal. And so the idea of, of any one entity being able to go in and rebuild these cities is just not likely to happen. There is a need to rebuild power grids, water systems, roads, and all the things that go into infrastructure. And then there's the need to rebuild housing. Hey, this is Morgan. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by PTZ Optics, which helps churches live stream broadcast their services on a budget. Today, I'm speaking with Doug Laws. He's a pastor in Florida, and he uses PTZO Optics. Hey, Doug, thanks so much for coming on with us. Thank you, Morgan, for having me on. Doug, you know, there's many churches that do not live stream their services, and so they might not know the ins and outs of what it takes to live stream a service. 
What are the logistical obstacles that make it difficult to live stream services? Live streaming is more than just kind of putting on a, a service or a show. You know, you need to have hardware experience. You need to know how the software works. You know, it takes a while figuring out how to just broadcast using like OBS or something. So, you know, you got to have good internet. You got to have good cameras. You also have to have a computer that can handle a video signal and send it to the internet. Another issue that I've had to overcome in recent history is I was actually having to use TeamViewer from stage, because I'm the worship leader, to start and stop my live streams on the streaming computer, which is on the other side of the building. So like <laughs> having somebody just to press the buttons is another logistical obstacle. Visit PTZ Optics slash church makeover by November 16th to win a complete live streaming makeover for your church. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. So on the ground, Mindy, since you have so many different contacts that you've amassed over your time reporting there, what type of sense do you get about how the different Christian communities in Iraq interact with one another and the extent to which they cooperate with each other? Yeah, I love talking about that because, you know, I mean, if, if we're part of churches in the United States or anywhere, we know that, that church life is, is fraught with challenges and difficulties and disagreements. <laughs> because it's made up of people. And the same is true, even in a place like Iraq. And so I've, I've seen over the years, you know, a, a good deal of friction among, say, the Chaldean churches versus the Syriac churches versus the, you know, the Syriac Catholic churches versus the Syriac Orthodox churches, the Assyrians, the Assyrians of the East. You know, we just have a lot of different groups. And then there is also, actually, I would say a, a bit of resentment that's grown up among the older churches towards the newer churches, because you also have, I mentioned Anglicans, there were three Presbyterian churches in Iraq. One is still active in Kirkuk. One in Mosul has been destroyed. We'll see if it comes back. There are evangelical churches. Um, a number of them have continued to operate and have been very vital within the region in um taking care of people. A lot of resentment of the older churches toward those newer churches, because very often people were leaving the older churches to go to the newer churches. And then, so the newer ones would be growing while the older ones would be shrinking, the kinds of things we might even see in the United States. What's happened over the course of this crisis, where there has not been the kind of outside support we've been talking about, is that the churches have found ways to work together. And it's been striking. I mean, this started in 2014. When these people, these vast populations were dislocated, people were actually sleeping outdoors, sleeping in ditches, sleeping in churchyards, and the churches were having to figure out how to help them, how to get—it was hot, you know, it was just a really horrific situation. I would hear from someone who I would consider an evangelical saying, yeah, we went out to help this community, and I would say, well, who went with you? Well, I was able to get air coolers, that's what they would call like 
fans or air conditioning units. I was able to get air coolers. The Orthodox priest had mattresses and the Chaldean had a van. And so we all went and went together and helped this village. That's how that started. And it has grown into a situation where now we have something called the Nineveh Reconstruction Committee that is overseeing much of the rebuilding effort and 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 really doing some remarkable work up to this point. It is a board made up of Chaldean, uh, Orthodox, and other believers. And I, I won't say they don't have their differences, but they really have come together for the sake of rebuilding their communities. As you're seeing these cooperation efforts, do you know the extent to which the U.S. government, when when they're making these plans to spend all this money, has like taken that into account, and kind of maybe what has changed in this most recent plan that they have in 2018 versus the failed one in 2017. What we're talking about in 2018 represents something they simply could not work out or could not get off the ground in earlier years, and the challenge is that these communities and these churches have begun rebuilding and planning without this kind of aid and without the assistance of someone like the United States. And when the United States decides to move in a major way into an area, very often it comes with its own agenda and its own plans. And what I've heard over the last few weeks or months is talk of this assistance was underway And people expected that something like this might be in the works and something might actually happen. A couple of the aid groups on the ground that have been on the ground throughout this crisis were saying what we fear is that now and what we're hearing in these meetings is that they're coming in talking to us as if it's 2014 or 2015 Mm. and it's 2018. And we've already started, you know, um, Samaritan's Purse, the U.S. aid group is is you know, rebuilt somewhere between three and 500 homes in Karakosh. People have moved back and are living there temporarily. They they have to have a generator and they have to bring water because they don't have those things. But what I hear these groups saying is they want the U.S. government to really listen to them and honor what's already happening on the ground because they really are coming into this situation very late in the game. And it's it's I think it's great and needed help but it's going to have to be done with a lot of the kind of spirit and cooperation that we've seen among these churches throughout this time period. It's not going to be easy. So the United States is not the only country that's doing work to support Middle Eastern Christians. We know that Hungary's government has actually launched several initiatives to help Christians in that region. Can you talk a little bit more about what they are doing there and if there are any other countries that you're aware of that are supporting these groups? Yeah, Hungary was actually uh, the first country as a country to commit aid to this region. And I've actually been back to the town of Telskov. I'm really fond of what Hungary did as a, as a small country that has had its own history of, of suffering in, in recent history and suffered at the hands of, of the communist regimes there and that sort of thing. Hungary went in and, and kind of laser-focused on Telescope. They didn't try to do like a grand, massive plan. They just said, this is a size town and the kind of town that we can help. And they made relationships there. Telescope has a large Catholic population, and they, which had been completely emptied. Telescope is interesting because 
It was completely emptied by ISIS, occupied for a period of, of weeks to several months. And then the Kurds were actually, the Kurdish militia, um, Peshmerga, went in to Telskov and fought ISIS there and, and won this, the town back over that and several other nearby communities. And then it was held. It was completely empty. It was too close to the front lines. It was not safe for anybody to return and live there. I actually walked through it in 2015, completely empty, completely militarized and controlled by checkpoints. And so Hungary, once people began to move back after the area around it had been liberated and was more secure, Hungary said, let's rebuild Telescoff. And they came back and they came alongside the churches, really developed relationships with the locals, the clergy, and cleaned up. I mean, so much of these areas have been bombed and, and just destroyed. They were either blown up from the inside by ISIS or they received, you know, when, when the coalition was dropping airstrikes, they had damage that way as well. Roads torn up, um, all kinds of things. Houses burned and destroyed by ISIS. Hungary came in and has just done this door-to-door, street-by-street rebuilding work. And I walked through there in um, March of this year. And it's just remarkable. There, was, there were a group of women meeting in one of the churches, and they were singing and getting ready for a larger service. Their children were running around, something that you know we could all identify with. Out on the street, men were sitting in outdoor little cafes, playing cards, playing backgammon, talking. And, and really, life was not coming back everywhere in Telescope, but where the Hungarian government had moved in and worked, it was definitely back and they were able to stay and live there. It was wonderful to see. You've mentioned that Middle Eastern Christians are not the only religious minorities that are there. What have you seen as far as how Christians have related to some of these other religious minorities and how that relationship has changed in the past 15 years or so. Yeah, I mean, it's so wonderful. And when I was doing research on the book, I really came to understand and appreciate this so much more, the diversity. You know, we talk about the Arab world or the Muslim world, and we really are writing off huge groups of people when we do that. I mean, mean, Iraq is the cradle of civilization, you know, Mesopotamia. And so it has just had layer upon layer upon layer of people groups and religious groups there. And so it's it's not surprising to go into an area. I mean, you can stand in the middle of Nineveh Plain and you can see the crosses on tops of the churches. You can see the cone-shaped temples where the Yazidis worship. And then you can see little towns, villages that are Turkoman, who are ethnic Muslim group, but very different from, say, majority Sunni Muslims or Shia Muslims in Iraq. You will see Shabaks, another small group, and Sabian Mandians, who are sort of an offshoot of a Christian group. Just an incredible diversity. You know, as far as the interaction between them, I mean, I would say in many ways, these are very separate, different communities who have lived quite peacefully, but not always, but for the most part, quite peacefully alongside one another. What happened with the coming of ISIS is that all of those groups were targeted alike. The Yazidis in particular were were targeted even, you know, more directly and more fiercely. Their women were taken captive and sold as slaves. So were Christians. We've seen less coverage of that, but that did happen. And there continue to be Christian women and girls missing, but but about 1,500 
Yazidi women and girls remain missing at this point. What that did was force these groups to flee together. I went into a, um, an unfinished building, about an eight-story building. It was going to be a hotel, and they had turned it into, they had divided up into little apartments. There were about 80 families living there in about 2015. And those there were Yazidi and Christian families living side by side because they had to, and they were cooking together. And it was really remarkable because they were learning what they had in common. And they had this new history in common of being displaced and targeted together and having escaped and survived together. I mean, there really has been a direct evangelistic, I would say, outgrowth of that because I have been in these churches that are so active since that time. And it is no longer unusual during a worship service at a Christian church to see Yazidis coming in, to see Muslims coming in, you Mm -hmm. know, to see families with women who are veiled. People have come to appreciate the witness of the church through this crisis that the church has suffered, but has not turned to arms, not turned to retribution. The church has responded by reaching out and by helping to serve Muslims and to, help, and to serve Yazidis, and that's drawn people in. It, you know, if we can talk about finding water in the desert, it's one of those moments. It also seems a little bit surprising, too, because Middle Eastern churches in general don't necessarily seem known for being overly evangelistic. Right. One of the things that this crisis has presented is an opportunity to give a witness through serving and through simply persevering. And so um, I had an opportunity, really remarkable opportunity in Europe to go to a service where nine Iraqi men were baptized and had the opportunity to sit down and talk with a number of them afterwards and to see several of them a year later. So to see how they were progressing as new Christian converts and what one of them said to me, uh, I'll never forget it. He, I, I said, so how did you end up at the church? And he said, he had described to me this incredible journey that he had made, which is not atypical of the kind of journey that some of these displaced people have made, where he escaped, was threatened by ISIS, did not want to be part of the group, was fearful that the longer he stayed, he was going to put the rest of his family in danger. He escaped, went to Turkey, came to Europe, and he said when he got into this European city, he found a friend, someone he knew, and he said, can you help me find a church? And his friend said, why do you want to find a church? And he said, because Islam has been nothing but trouble for me. And a number of them, this is what they've come to. You know, this is one of the reasons why being able to welcome people in their hour of need and being able to serve them is in itself a witness, I think, that the church can give. Speaking of the Muslim community, how have Christians' relationships with their Sunni and Shia neighbors changed in the wake of this persecution? I think generally, it's fair to say there's a larger distrust. Many of them feel, and it it will depend on where someone is from, but let's just say if you are a family that was living in Mosul, if you were a Christian family living in Mosul, you most likely lived in a neighborhood where there also were Muslims on the street. Many of them feel or know that when ISIS came into Mosul, their Muslim neighbors gave them away. In other words, their Muslim neighbors said, yeah, yeah, that's a Christian home. Yes, that's where the Christians live, over there on that block. And, And in fact, a number of people sided with 
ISIS um, or glad that ISIS had come for a variety of reasons. And the Christians saw that, you know, that they were losing everything and they saw neighbors who were basically turning on them. And not to mention the fact that there was no one there to protect them, that they were forced out over and over again. So I, I think it's fair to say that there is a lot of distrust and that people are fearful moving back into their neighborhoods. If you're in a town that is mostly Christian town, and there are a number of those that are now sort of coming back to life, if there can be sort of collective security, then, then I think it's possible for them as communities to reconnect with some of their Muslim neighbors. But I, I would say there's still a great deal of fear about that. And there's nothing like a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission coming. I always hear that talked about. I'm not aware that it's actually happened. I haven't been anywhere where I've seen that it's happened or heard that it's happened. I, I think it could be something that could be really helpful. I just think for so long this area has been in this sort of paralyzed state where the essentials haven't been there. So, you know, once once they have the lights turned back on, mm. then they might be able to think about be able to think about truth and reconciliation. One area that's really hopeful, let's look at is is just young people. And you know, the reopening of the University of Mosul was a huge thing because that is a campus where Muslims, Christians, Yazidis, Kurds, a number of students came together. And I have taught, I've, I've taught to a number of Yazidi students who are back at the University of Mosul. I know a, a number of Christians who are going back to classes there now. They're having to be bused in because, again, there isn't really enough infrastructure to support them living in the, in the area. But that just throws people together. And so I think that we can look to that younger generation as a place where we might see the kind of reconciliation that needs to happen begin. From a big picture perspective, Mindy, since you have been following this story for so long, I'm really curious where you continue to just kind of feel despair um, about Mm -hmm. the progress or lack thereof, and also where you are feeling hope. Obviously, this university is a great example, but any others would be welcome too. Right. Yeah, you know, I mentioned that just walking through a city that's been devastated is 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 actually pretty devastating. And you think about the opening of of Lamentations, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. There's a reason that the Book of Lamentations begins that way. I visited some of those cities two and three times. You know, even after they were liberated, and they remained hopeless places, burned out churches churches that had had tunnels dug under them by ISIS, 30 feet deep in some cases, bomb factories. I mean, I walked through what we would consider like a fellowship hall near a church, and it had been turned into a bomb factory by ISIS and the powder and the wires. And, you know, they were building just things to to kill and destroy people. And they were all still there. And, and it's, it's a very hopeless feeling. You think, how can any community ever come back from this? Um, streets where every single house had had oil sprayed and then fire set so that this, the houses would burn from within. Explosives buried. You know, I, I saw a family of six people brought to the hospital outside of Mosul. They had um, gone back to their house and it had been wired with Mm. explosives and it had blown up. And, you know, and that included a two-year-old who had lost both of her feet and was, you know, crippled for life 
those are places of hopelessness and despair because you do wonder if if there is enough help, if there is enough will to rebuild and and to come back. But the hope burns really bright in a dark place like that. And there are just remarkable efforts, some of the things that we've talked about. But I would say over and over again, the um, perseverance and the determination of these ancient churches to survive. I sat with a, a Chaldean leader at one point, and he just gave a, I, I, I said, do you think there's going to come a point when you just have to leave? And he said, oh, no, I will never leave. And since I had that conversation with him, I've heard versions of this from any number of people, but he said, I will never leave. He said, this is this is the place where our, our forefathers began. This is the place where God placed us. This is the place where we feel like we have to give a witness for Christ. And then he also went on to say, the Muslims need us. The Muslims need the other living alongside them so that they know um, what we have to offer and, and, and just as a witness. And it's, it's really powerful. It has taught me a lot as a believer here in our um, you know, our, our plenty and our peacefulness, relatively speaking, in the United States. I guess I have to say that I feel a little bit despairing, too, that, th- that the church in America, the government in Washington, has, has been somewhat deaf to this situation. There's so much that is heroic about how these people have held on, and we have taken so long to get aid to them. And we have failed to learn and to benefit from what we could learn from a partnership with these communities. I guess I feel a little bit sad about that, but I think that these communities have a lot to teach us, and that gives me hope. Let me ask you a personal question. You're a journalist uh, having to go to these places where there's such destruction and human suffering. So what keeps you going? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question because I, I get on a plane to leave and I look down at the the old canals and the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers running sort of alongside each other as I fly out and I think, will I ever go back? And I keep going back. And one reason that I keep going back is simply that the story is not done. Whether it's my decision or somebody else's, hey, I think you need to go cover this again. Keep going back. But I really feel like I I tried to capture this in the book because I, I am an East Coast wasp, you know, white person without real understanding of this ancient Eastern church, very Western person going into this very different world. And I have come to learn so much, and I've really come to feel at home there, to feel a great welcome there. And it's it remains a war zone. And so, you know, I feel like if that is possible for me, that's something that I want. That's a story I want to tell. That's an experience I want other people to have a taste of too. And so I, I do keep going back for that reason. There are people, there are friends I want to see. You know, I have friends there now. Well, you've done a great job of telling the story for for us and for our listeners. So thank you for coming on today, Mark. Thank you. It's a great privilege to be with you guys. Anyone who has feedback, you can leave it to us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we get to share some feedback from previous episodes with all of you guys. So 
I just wanted to remind everyone that last week's podcast, we had the chance to talk about climate change, the environment, global warming, and I highly recommend our conversation with Peter Harris, who is a conservationist, but I thought we'd share some of the feedback that we got from this. So one of the people who shared our episode was a former Republican U.S. representative named Bob Inglis, and he wrote this. It's worth listening to the whole 44 minutes, but even if you just listen to the first 20 minutes, you'll get a beautiful biblical explanation of why we should care from Peter Harris, an Anglican priest who leads Arosha. We also got a response from uh, listener William Wallace. He says, thanks for doing this podcast. Even when I disagree, I find that it causes me to think and review my positions on various issues and why I believe or think the way I do. I heartily agree that as Christians, we are called to be good stewards of the world with which God has blessed us. Uh, There are many things that we can do on an individual basis to conserve and protect our fellow creatures and other aspects of the natural environment. But then he uh, reacts against a couple of the parts of the podcast by saying, first, uh, the quote, quote, it's settled science, end quote, is a continuing mantra concerning the fact that human activity contributes greatly to climate change. Very simply, this is not true. Science should never be settled as that position closes the door for future research and discovery. He also says, Additionally, this report is only the latest of a number of hysterical warnings published to scare people into changing their lifestyles and redistribute wealth on a massive scale. And then he ends with this parenthetical line. It's really quite illuminating to go back and review those claims to see how poorly they match up with what has actually happened. This is a great proof that global climate modeling is very inexact and past predictions have been drastically overstated. And I think we'll wrap with this comment from Lauren White. She wrote and said, I'd just like to take a minute to thank the CT staff for the wonderful podcast on climate change that Quick to Listen produced. I was delighted to hear about the work that Arosha is doing and encouraged by the concern and activity that Christians outside the U.S. are taking. I'm praying that the Lord will bless Arosha's work and stir in the hearts of the American church our deep calling to take responsibility as stewards of the Earth's resources. So thank you for everyone who does comment. Uh, we do really appreciate getting them. Good, bad, and indifferent. And when we have the opportunity, we like to share those with our larger listeners. Yes. Critical feedback, constructive feedback, send it here. Podcast at ChristianityDay.com or on Twitter at CT Podcast. One way that this podcast is able to be produced week after week is through everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And our November issue is hot off the presses. Mark, did you have an article that you were... I don't know if moved is the correct word, but... Well, I just really appreciate it. Yeah, in the November issue, there's an article by Kevin Van Hooser, who's, I think it might be fair to say he's the leading uh, evangelical theologian, in, certainly in the States today, but also uh, a theologian who can communicate with a larger audience. And he did this very pleasant little article called Core Exercises, How Focusing on Our Theological Center Helps Us Remember Who We Are. And I'm, I've been into exercising my core physically, but I like the way he used that that metaphor to talk about the spiritual core of our lives, cognitive exercises, volitional exercises, relational exercises. And he's basically talking about a lot of the basics of what it means to to grow, to stay strong in the Christian faith, but he does it in such a fresh way, it does invite you to read it and then to apply it to your life. So I thought it was just a very clean, excellent, simple article that drove home some fundamentals very nicely. People can read that article by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen 
orderct.com slash quick to listen. And our November issue is a really thoughtful issue altogether. And I hope that you can read that. And again, you can do that if you're a subscriber. If for nothing else, you want to get it just for the cover alone. It's stunning. It is stunning. I completely agree. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone has a chance to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Mark, I'm throwing it to you. I think just the change of the seasons. Went out to my car the other morning, and there was frost all over the windshield. And it was a nice, brisk, chilly fall morning. That's one of the things I enjoy about living in the Midwest. I was born and raised in California. It has seasons, but they're not as nearly as demarcated as they are in the Midwest. And it's always a great gift of our creator to give us seasons and to enjoy the, what each one of them has to bring. So that's, that would be mine. Does fall mean that golfing and fishing season are over, or do you continue to the, until it snows? No, it, those are over. Now the big rush is to get the house ready for the winter. All right. <laughs> a lot of chores. All right. Where can people find you? I publish something called the Galley Report. G-A-L-L-I is the way you spell it. It can be found at Christianity Today slash the Galley Report. I link to articles I find of interest and make comments on them, and people seem to find that helpful. There you go. All right, Mindy? Yeah. Mark stole mine. Um, I I love fall, and it's finally here. But I'll I'll, I'll go I'll go you one more. My um, my husband uh, had knee replacement surgery last week, and if you've been through anything like that, which many people have, you know that the worst side of it is the way that you dread it going into it. And um, we're just glad to be on the other side. He's doing really well. He's about four or five days out from surgery, and we're having a nice little season of having to be at home convalescing together. I was so, going to say, is this um, not a homebody family? <laughs> we don't get that opportunity very much. And so <laughs> we're really taking it. You know, we, he, had, he had to go through a lot to get us to stay home for an extended period of time. But we're enjoying that. I've experienced two knee surgeries, replacements. Ooh. Yeah. So oh, wow. uh, let me just encourage your husband, really do the exercises and the therapy they recommend. I'll, I'll pass that along. Yep. We've heard that word. And yeah, he, yeah. He's off no, no, to no. a good start, but I know there's a long road ahead. It's one of the great, uh, greatest operations in modern medical history. The, the difference between walking before and after my knees were replaced is just remarkable. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Mindy, what are your favorite things to do during fall? I actually like to rake leaves. Um, my my kids always hated how much I like to get out and rake leaves. Um, <laughs> I just love being out with my neighbors in the fall and getting hikes. We live in a wonderful area for hiking and yeah, just just about anything. Bonfires, you name it. So where can people find you outside of this podcast? They can find me at worldmag.com where I write regularly and also... I do three times a week an email blast called Globetrot, and I do it because it helps me, um, I think, more than it helps anyone who receives it. It just helps me to keep tabs on what's going on in the world and keep in touch with people who are doing just exciting and amazing things in the world. People can receive that by emailing me at mbells at worldmag.com. Well, very cool. All right. My precious moment is that I went to two weddings on Saturday and Sunday over the weekend. One of the couples had their wedding reception outside, which it happened to be 35 degrees that day. Not exactly prime 
recep- outdoor reception weather, but I will have to say that they made the most of it. They actually got people to play an outdoor softball game with them, which lasted for about an hour, which is pretty remarkable when it's almost started snowing at one point. It may have started snowing, unclear. And someone else led outdoor Zumba for a couple songs. <laughs> so props to them for being able to get people to go outside for their wedding and having just an unconventional reception in general. We had, a softball, we had a softball game at my wedding. Right on. But it was 108 degrees that day. Wow, the weather was not in either of your guys' favor. <laughs> wow. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. We appreciate all of our listeners. Thank you, everyone, who has rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge way to boost the show. Thank you, everyone, who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. Again, you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by christianbook.com. If you're still shopping for Christian products online in the secular retailer, christianbook.com has the web's largest selection of everything Christian for less. christianbook.com. And this podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, Richard Clark. You can find it on the aforementioned Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. We are there. We will see you all next week.